Welcome to History Talk, a history podcast for everyone, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Patrick Patyandi. Many historians consider World War I as the most important event of the 20th century, a conflict that broke apart the old world order to set the stage for the rest of the century. Also known as the Great War, this was the 20th century's first man-made global upheaval, literally bigger and more disastrous than any war before. This is your other co-host, Leticia Wiggins. 2014 marks the 100th anniversary of World War I's beginning. As Patrick noted, the Great War's ramifications were felt throughout the world, and its impact on social and cultural memory extreme. We dedicate this podcast to the myriad of ways this war is commemorated globally. To explore this subject further, we have three historians joining us via phone to lend their global perspective on this war's remembrance. We'll hear from Tristan Hildenen and Brenna Miller as they weigh in on Sarajevo and Belgrade, and Keisha Lai as she reports on the less-studied war memorials in Singapore. So stay tuned for unique perspectives on one of the most remembered wars of the last century. Okay, um, I'm Brenna Miller, and I'm a graduate student of history at The Ohio State University. Um, I specialize in European history and specifically on the socialist era in Yugoslavia. Um, so where are you uh, calling us today from? Um, I'm calling today from Belgrade, Serbia, where I'm doing some research for my dissertation. Um, but last week I took a special trip to Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina um, to have a look at some of the commemorations for the 100-year anniversary of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. In a recent article, you call the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand one of the most successful assassination attempts in history, not only because the assassin was able to kill his marks, but because by the end of the war, the geopolitical boundaries that he had been trying to change had in fact changed in large part because of his actions. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the ways in which you see the assassination is successful and kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, I use the term successful um, in a bit of a meditative way. Um, and I used it that way for two reasons. First, in the very literal sense, Um, that the assassination achieved its geopolitical goals, right? Um, At the turn of the century, Bosnia was under Austro-Hungarian occupation or annexation. But there were movements for national independence in the region. And the ultimate goal of Princip and the organization he was a part of, Malata Bosna, or uh, Young Bosnia, uh, was to liberate Bosnia from the Austro-Hungarian Empire and to unify it with other South Slavs in an independent state. Um, And, of course, there's debate about exactly what form or balance of power that unification was intended to take. Uh, but by the end of World War I, that unification was exactly what happened. Um, Austro-Hungarian rule ended and the Yugoslav kingdom emerged. And considering this kind of uh, controversial act, to say the least, um, has the 100th anniversary of World War I's beginning that you mentioned that you, that you visited some of the events in Sarajevo, um, has it received much attention there? Um, how are the people there commemorating the war? What events have been going on? The anniversary has definitely received a tremendous amount of attention. Um, and that's not just here in the Balkans, but also in the international media. Um, and all of this has kind of been in the works for months now. Um, even, I have to say, <laughs> kind of to the point of fatigue in covering it for months on end now. But there's definitely been no shortage of articles on the assassination right. um, that have come out. There have been media and reporters and documentaries all over the city. Um, and lots of tourists in town, especially for the commemorations. But as for the events themselves, I guess it's important to explain that there are essentially two threads of commemorations. Generally, there was one sort of thread that viewed the assassination as sort of a terrible act that ushered in an era of war. But there's another interpretation of Gavrila Princip and the assassination that views it as 
sort of a victory for independence and liberation. But the main events um, took place in Sarajevo, which is where I attended. Um, and most were organized with pretty heavy EU and Europe- European organizational support and also financial assistance. And these were more oriented towards commemorating the assassination and, and sort of the generalized idea of war and a new era of peace. And there were a lot of events along these lines. It's almost sort of like dizzying uh to sort of try to recount them. Um, there were museum exhibits and theater events and art unveilings. Right, right. And so were the tourists there? Were they, did you get a sense that a lot of them were there because of this kind of historical anniversary? I don't, sometimes I think we think of tourism as, as being based around history, in fact. Uh, I have sort of uh, an ongoing meditation on tourism sort of in the city. And it seemed like a lot of the people that were here uh, had sort of a specific interest in World War One kind of history buffs, you know, alongside historians and things that, that kind of want to see how things were being commemorated and just sort of be present in the place at the moment uh, when the sort of historic events occurred. Right, right. And this is a really good transition, I think, into kind of the next um, question, with Sarajevo being the site of, you know, the the main event that historians generally see as the spark that ignited World War One. Um, so have the various commemorations taken on a special meaning in Sarajevo because of the role the city played? And I imagine there are sort of uh, competing views here that you kind of have started to touch on about the war and the city and how they should be seen. The, the separate events definitely speaks to a lot of controversy around the interpretation of the Villa Princess. And in the article, I kind of talked a little bit about the different phases that his memory has gone through. The commemorations this time around are really heavily influenced by I feel the war in the 1990s and some of the legacies of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of different local interpretations now of Gabriela Princip that sort of speak to that moment of conflict. Um, one sort of thread of those, and, and this is a bit of a generalization, but primarily Bosniaks and Croats here, um, sort of view now Gabriela Princip as a symbol for um, greater Serb ambition um, and Serb aggression. Um, and conversely, Serbs in the region view him even more now as sort of a defender of national interests and also a defender against foreign intervention. Um, so a lot of the events really spoke to those sort of contrasting views of, of Princess. Um, and because there was a lot of concern about that sort of controversy, the very fact that there would be competing events, event organizers really wanted to kind of stem this perception of Sarajevo as being a place of conflict. And so that's why so many of these main events really seem to focus more on their peace and having a new era in the country's history. There's a kind of an interesting contrast there, right? So the Balkans are often seen as this, you know, quote unquote, tinderbox of Europe divided by ethnic rivalries and ethnic violence. Um, You know, we have the word Balkanized even, right, for this. Um, So in what ways are the people of Bosnia and Sarajevo you know, including those government officials, uh, maybe the veterans from the 1990s wars that you suggested, that you mentioned, um, how are they struggling to change that image of the region as we move into the 21st century? Um, well, I think kind of reflecting personally on the events themselves, some of these uh, concert events and also theater performances that went on that focused so heavily on, on peace and a new era, they were definitely paying attention to this idea of changing the perception of Sarajevo in the international community. Um, and, and I think in part there was definitely um, a sense that they were combating sort of, gosh, I guess a media that was kind of ready to seize on any signs of conflict, right? I mean, right, think yeah. Of Bosnia, that's what we think of. Um, and so for the events themselves, the focus on promoting peace and a new future was definitely a part of an effort to 
present that new image of Sarajevo. And youth especially, I have to say, here seemed particularly involved in a number of events that weren't necessarily about the assassination, um, but were things like peace conferences or performances that focused on um, sort of international connection and building bridges and things like that. Um, so, so it sounds like a lot of these events that, you know, you, you visited were largely successful, would you say? On the whole, yes. Um, it's, it's very easy to be a bit cynical, mm-hmm. um, to look at, you know, sort of moments or instances that, that were maybe a little bit heavy-handed. Mm, okay. um, the this, uh, Vienna Philharmonic concert that was presented at the City Hall, um, that City Hall used to be the National Library. And during the 1990s, it was burned um, mm-hmm. by Serb, Serb armies sieging the city. And so the decision to hold the concert there, while it does suggest sort of rebirth um, and a new cultural era, also kind of could be perceived as a criticism against Serbs. And in fact, there is a placard on the front of the building that describes Serbs, and it specifically uses the word criminals um, who destroyed the building in the 1990s. I do have to say, on the whole, my sense of the events was that they were really relatively moving. Um, and I'm a, a bit of an optimist, but I I felt that they were relatively successful, yes. And it, and it also sounds like uh, very well attended. People really paying attention to the history here. I have to say, it was a really pretty crazy week, you know, kind mm-hmm. of running from one event to another event. They were sort of all over the city. Um, it always wasn't clear where things were going on <laughs> sometimes. So it was it was a little bit hectic. Um, but I will say, though, that to sort of focus on, on the future and sort of using the commemorations themselves as a prism through which to, to begin moving forward, I think was pretty salient in terms of speaking to the contemporary general political situation in Bosnia. And I guess I would say that, that in general, Bosnia has really struggled since the breakup of Yugoslavia with a number of issues um, in the country. Um, the Dayton Accords after the war divided up power between ethnic groups in the country and institutionalized a lot of these ethnic divisions. Um, and that has caused a lot of political gridlock that hasn't been able to deal with some of Bosnia's problems um, with infrastructure and especially with unemployment. And I think that this effort on focusing on moving forward and reconciliation is really important for Bosnia right now, especially because they're considering reforming the Dayton Accords. And earlier this year, there were a number of protests that were against a lot of this national division. And so I think that that this event that kind of focused on moving forward really speaks to that need to actually enact reforms that can make Bosnia successful in the future. That's a really important example, I think, of you connecting there, the kind of long history of the region and present events. Thank you, Brenna Miller, for joining us today on History Talk. All right. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Kirsten Hildeman, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of History here at Ohio State. You know, I specifically focus on Eastern Europe, and I'm writing my dissertation on everyday life under the German occupation in Belgrade, Serbia during World War II. Well, welcome to the show, um, and tell us where you are calling from today and where you've uh, recently visited. So I'm calling you from Belgrade, Serbia, where I'm actually currently living while I'm doing my dissertation research here in the city been great because it's been given me a great opportunity to observe the city in depth and really get to know its character. With this podcast, we're focusing on the 100th anniversary of World War One. Has the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the war received much attention in Belgrade? And how are the people of Belgrade commemorating the war? What events have been going on? At first, 
it really kind of surprised me how little pageantry and formality surrounded both the anniversary of Franz Ferdinand's assassination back in June and Austria-Hungary's actual declaration of war against Serbia in July. Um, there's been nothing in Belgrade anywhere near approaching the scale of what went on in Sarajevo to commemorate the assassination. But instead, I've gotten the opportunity to go to several smaller cultural events and retrospectives here, and there's been a greater number of kind of more formative events rather than events of a more commemorative character. And, you know, there's a lot of debate going on in the public sphere among the general public and newspapers as well. What sorts of these kind of smaller multicultural events have you uh, had a chance to go to? As far as the cultural events go, there were two really interesting exhibits that I went to that stood out to me for a couple of reasons. One was exhibit of Serbian Impressionist painters at the National Museum. Another was an exhibition of Serbian literary production, which included books, journals, sketches, newsletters, anything produced during the war or on the front line. And so I thought these two were really interesting because what they did, they did a really good job highlighting Serbian talent and Serbia's struggle and suffering during the war because it really was devastating. Serbia lost at least 15% of its population and went through a pretty brutal occupation under Austria-Hungary. But at the same time as they highlighted Serbian talent, they both did a really nice job clearly demonstrating similarities in cultural exchange with what was going on in the rest of Europe during World War I. And it's important to note that historian Margaret Macmillan has recently called the lead-up to the beginning of World War I the, quote, war to end all peace. Do you agree with that interpretation? And do the people of Serbia see the origins of the war in such negative terms today? I mean, there, it's yes and no. Something important to remember in Serbia is that unlike most of the rest of Europe, when World War I broke out, it had already been at war recently, in 1912 and 1913, during the First and Second Balkan Wars. First, they were fighting against the Ottoman Empire, and then they fought against Bulgaria. So the start of World War I was more like going back to war rather than starting a whole new cycle of war. Um, there was an outdoor viewing of a Yugoslav film called March on the Drina that I went to. Uh, it was about the first time that Serbia defeated Austria-Hungary on the battlefield during World War One. And what it really drove home well was that at least at the outset of the war, soldiers and people, they really thought they knew what to expect, thought they knew their roles, but they turned out to be really wrong because Austria-Hungary was a lot better equipped for the war in the Balkans than the Ottomans had been. So it wasn't quite as peaceful here as Western Europe. But as far as ending peace goes, I think that Margaret McMillan's bigger point is a really good one. You know, that the war wasn't necessarily inevitable, but rather it was a result of you know, a series of choices made by fallible people. And I guess that logic, that same logic, applies to the idea of World War One being a war to end all peace. I'm not so sure it was the lead-up to the war, even the events of the war, that made peace kind of an endangered species in the world. But the country that you know, what eventually became Yugoslavia was created in the aftermath of the war, but without a real firm consensus between the different nationalities and ethnicities, which I think most of us know led to problems later in World War II and beyond. So I do think that in Serbia, there's a tendency to look at the war as a kind of beginning of a period of struggle that really only ended recently. But also, more positively, the origins of the war are a way to really enshrine and commemorate what Serbs see as true Serbian valor and heroism. There's part of this uh, commemoration to kind of celebrate Serbian identity then. Exactly. And I think that's important because, you know, the more I thought about why these events weren't necessarily such a widespread public character, but it's really kind of because Serbia is still trying to define how it regards Princip and the outbreak of World War One, both in relation to Serbia's history and in relation to Serbia's position in Europe and the rest of the world today. There was an event to commemorate the actual declaration of war 
the opening of an archival exhibit by the Archives of Serbia in the Serbian Parliament building. And at that event, the Speaker of the Serbian Parliament really emphasized the need to look to the future and the need to work in concert with Europe. So Serbia is still trying to figure out exactly how it looks at the start of the war and how it relates to Europe. Um, and so you already mentioned World War II in your previous answer. And so I'm wondering how, you know, in, in many cases, World War I is often overshadowed um, in more recent memory by the Second World War. And is this the case for Serbia? Or is this something that maybe takes place more in somewhere like the United States, where the Second World War is really um, dominates the memory of world wars? Absolutely the case in Serbia as well. I think that's pretty universal in Europe and the United States. Interesting. Part of it is because you know, World War II in Yugoslavia was such a violent and divisive event. It literally tore the country apart. And so the divisions between people that it exacerbated must have really left a shadow on all the successor states. So I understand why so much effort and scholarship, you know, including my own project, has been focused World War II over World War One. One of the most interesting things about the events and efforts surrounding the commemoration of World War One this year that a real effort's being made to bring the availability of information about World War One up to the standard of World War Two. One good example is at the Historical Archives of Belgrade, where there is an effort to digitize at least 20% of the documents pertaining to World War One, and also to develop a database of prisoners who were interned at Austro-Hungarian camps during World War One. And this would be a resource comparable to ones that have already been created and now exist for the concentration camps in Belgrade during World War II. So there's kind of a push to bring them up to equal levels of importance, but I don't think it's quite there yet. Yeah, that's a really uh, great way of making history accessible to the public. Um, And it's sort of a final last word here. Um, Why, in your opinion, is it important to mark the anniversary of World War I? Well, I think particularly in the case of Serbia, World War I was the last time before the 1990s that Serbia actually existed as as its own country. So I think there's a really positive example, especially if we kind of avoid letting the interpretation of World War I be colored by more recent events. I think Serbia has a great opportunity to look back and identify its own character and its own history. So looking at all these cultural memories and all this documentation about the war, it's a great opportunity to kind of rebuild that identity now that Serbia is and will be for the foreseeable future its own country. On behalf of History Talk, I'd like to thank you, Kirsten, for joining us today. Thank you, Patrick. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Kisha Lai, and I am from Singapore. Um, I just completed my second year of graduate school in the history department at the Ohio State University, and I am back in Singapore for the summer to conduct research, and that's me. Where exactly are you calling from today, and where have you recently visited, Keisha? So I am calling from Singapore. Okay, so in Singapore, there are three sites that commemorate World War One, and I visited two of them on my trip here. The first site that I visited is called the Cenotaph, And it's basically a war memorial that commemorates the sacrifice of British soldiers who died in World War I and World War II. And the second site that I visited has a little bit more complicated background. So on February 15, 1915, in the midst of World War I, a troop of Muslim Indian soldiers called the Fifth Light Infantry. This Fifth Light Infantry was stationed in Singapore by the British they rose up and mutinied against the British authorities, and they killed about 40 British officers stationed in the barracks. 
in this place called Tangling, and they also killed other European civilians that they that they met along the way. This mutiny lasted for about 10 days before it was suppressed. In the end, about 36 mutineers were executed, and over 70 of them were sent back to India. And so in the aftermath of this whole mutiny, um, the comrades and associates of the deceased British soldiers and civilians made memorial tablets to be hung in two different places at this building that is now called the Victoria Theatre and Concert Hall. And the other place is in this church called St. Andrew's Cathedral. St. Andrew's Cathedral is an Anglican church. It is one of the oldest in Singapore. It was built in the 1850s. And it is currently the largest cathedral in Singapore. So... I think this is why they felt that it would be an appropriate place to commemorate those who died there. When I was in Singapore, I was able to visit St. Andrew's Cathedral and the Cenotaph. Thinking of especially your mention of St. Andrew's Cathedral with, with the tablets, it seems there's also an additional religious component to this memory. And would you care to expand on this a little bit? Yeah. This light infantry, this, this troop of Indian soldiers, consisted of Muslim Indians who were stationed in Singapore since 1914. When they started coming here, they had this troop leader that that was British, and he was really unpopular with the soldiers. There was poor communication and very low morale among the soldiers. And then the soldiers would rest at this cafe, and this cafe owner would also stop anti-British sentiments and tell them that it is their religious duty as Muslims to overthrow the British. From 1914 to 1915, this anti-British sentiments just simmered on the surface, but nothing happened until February 1915, when they were supposed to be shipped to Hong Kong to, to be stationed there. However, rumors broke out that they were going to be sent to Europe to fight against the Turks instead. When World War I broke out, the Turks sided with the Germans against the British. Okay? Mm-hmm. And the Sultan of Turkey at this time was regarded the leader of the Muslim world. These Indian soldiers, they would be sent to Europe under the British to fight against their fellow Turkish Muslims and the Germans. Because they were fearful of this, on February 15, they mutinied. They went to the barracks to obtain ammunition, and that's when chaos erupted for about (laughs) 10 days. Um, The British military had to call for help from outside, and interestingly, okay, um, the Sultan of Johor became an ally to the British. Johor is a state in present-day Malaysia, neighboring country from Singapore, hmm. and is really just di- divided from Singapore by a very narrow body of water. The Sultan is also a Muslim. He sent his troops to run out any mutineers who crossed the straits into Johor. And so I just thought when I you know, was doing my research about this Sea Point Mutiny of 1915 and looking at the memorial, it just raised a lot of questions to me about hmm. religion and war. What about the effect of religion in the colonies and decolonization? You know, how about the impact of religion on individuals? You know, for example, like these Muslim Indians who felt that it was their religious duty to revolt, and yet the Muslim Sultan of Johor proved an ally to the British. It seems that this history of World War One in Singapore you mentioned is tied really closely with that of European colonization. And do you think that this plays into this current memory of the Great War as well? Frankly, I think current memory of the Great War is still very much focused on what took place in Europe. 
I think it's very important to highlight and understand the ramifications in the colonies. Like a very basic reason for this is because looking at the colonies and the impact of World War One on the colonies underscores this our description of the Great War as a world war. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it doesn't just just show like what took place in the European theater, but it also shows the ripple effects in the colonies and that it was devastating to to people there, you know, and there were British soldiers born in the colonies who lost their lives in the war as well. I think it also connects a lot to discussions and debates of decolonization, even though we don't really immediately directly connect it to World War One, for example, like the Sepoy Mutiny. I know mm-hmm. there's one historian who stated that this mutiny had a large impact on India's agitation for independence from the British later on, a few decades later. Although another historian has also disputed this and said, no, this mutiny really didn't have any large impact. <laughs> <laughs> As historians do. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, looking at the colonies brings out another... Um, Looking at the colonies and how World War One affected it, you know, brings out more discussions and debates and sheds light on a history that we don't really think about, you know. Like I said earlier, it really highlights the role of religion and, and other factors in the war. I think it raises questions about identity mm. in the colonies as well, you know, like how the Cenotaph was erected for British men born in Singapore but sent back as British citizens to fight for their nation motherland, which they might or might not have visited prior to the war. You know, when one thinks of World War One, you're right. Like normally Singapore doesn't usually come to mind as one of the, yeah. the top places, right? <laughs> so you're bringing us a really unique perspective today. And just to kind of wrap up and say thank you for reminding us that this is a world war we're talking about. <laughs> I was wondering, how is the memory of the war alive in Singapore today from your from what you've observed? I think the really sad thing is that when I went to visit the memorial, there weren't a lot of people there. And I think it's because World War One is just very disconnected from the memory of Singaporeans today, especially for the younger generation. I think they read about the war in the textbooks and they feel that it really doesn't affect them directly. Hmm. Um, and it's just really, really sad that it, it's not really in their memory. Um, so last year in 2013, Someone actually vandalized the cenotaph. Uh. He spray painted this big X over the years 1914 to 1918, and then he wrote democracy in bold letters above. And the copy was, was eventually caught, and he turned out to be a 33-year-old man. Hmm. And um, the leading newspapers in Singapore cited this as an example of how younger generation of Singaporeans are disconnected from the significance, you know, of these national monuments. Like, they have no sense or respect or memory of the significance of of the cenotaph. The memory of war is just not very alive in Singapore today. Um, I will say, though, that incident with vandalism, it did spark some discussions among the younger generation. <laughs> <laughs> I think it did make them, like, wake up and think about mm-hmm. it, you know? <laughs> so. so some good came out of it, in a yeah, way. Yeah, some good came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Keisha, thank you so much for joining us today and enlightening us as to this history uh, in Singapore. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this chance. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. 
Our main editors are Stephen Kong and Nicholas Bridefogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Patiandi and Leticia Wiggins. We'd like to offer a special thank you to local Columbus-based band, The End of the Ocean, for providing our music. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.